Hello. What up? Hello. What's up? Hello. Oh, man. It's Ergo. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm Kiss. Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city. That's Chicago for the more equitable and creative. How are you feeling, Damon? I'm feeling all right. Moving, moving with the world. It spins. I stand. You haven't been spinning the whole time? Nope. <laughs> Standing still. You would think we would get dizzy. That's a fair assumption. I'm sure gravity has something to do with that. We should have someone on who knows more about gravity than we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, what we have for you today... Speaking of staying grounded. <laughs> why don't we uh, share what we got for you today? What we have is the fourth and final edition of In the Loop, Out the Blue, at least in this first iteration. Uh, for those who don't know, we've been working with the Real Shy Newsroom over at Free Spirit Media, youth media nonprofit here in Chicago, to develop a podcast that enables a deeper dive into the stories they're reporting on and the narrative shaping our city. Uh, this one has a central segment on money bail and how we can reshape concepts of incarceration, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other good stuff. It was been great working with them. I really appreciated getting to know the squad of really smart emerging journalists. So if you're looking for people to be doing great reporting in the city and you want to give them opportunities, there's a whole cadre of people at the top floor of the Holman Tower who could use those shots. Yep, yep. It was cool. We felt like real producers here. I think we call ourselves producers, but we did it this time. The title that I came up with for this, which I just told them was the title for us, is a supervising producer. Yep, yep. So if you ever, if you anyone out there needs any supervising <laughs> production, David and I are happy to supervise. <laughs> <laughs> Without further ado, uh, let's get to episode four of In the Loop. Out the blue. Yeah. I'm Maya J. Horton. This is Brianna Madden. I'm Pat Abong. I'm Ebony Ellis. I'm Jenny Shu. I'm Julia Monshin. I'm Trevor Squire. I'm Kristen Simmons. I'm Sam Kelly. I'm Amanda Tagati. I'm Pascal Sabino. I'm Chelsea Berry. We are the real shy. In the loop, out the blue. Welcome to the fourth episode of In the Loop, Out the Blue. This is a podcast reclaiming community journalism on both Chicago's west and south sides. We are reporting people over institutions. The Real Shot is a podcast of Free Spirit Media. Come take a ride with us. We are The Real Shot. Doors closing. This stop is the headlines where we talk about recent local and sometimes national news coverage, sort of talking about it, critiquing it, and seeing how it affects Chicago. My name is Trevor. My name is Maya. And our, uh, our first headline that we want to go over is a recent housing development and retail space. The Chicago Planning Commission just passed a $200 million development project that the Chicago Sun-Times has framed as promising new jobs and housing for people in the area. And whenever these types of developments are proposed, there's, you know, always that kind of skepticism you got to keep in mind a little bit. So the Chicago Sun-Times says this project is supposed to be or they're planning for it to be mixed income housing. Um, but some folks who have been following the story a bit kind of see it as the telltale beginning signs of gentrification. And mixed income housing, uh, I mean, what does that really qualify? Segments of uh, above market, below market, like middle tier housing. And 
these are all set by a uh, yeah by national guidelines and not necessarily people who are in the community understanding yeah levels of unemployment and the types of welfare that people are receiving that help them being able to have a stable home. The whole mixed income housing terminology, it just kind of, it makes it seem like things are shifting around. In the Chicago Sun-Times article, the contractor's vice president is saying that they want about 50 to 70 percent of of the almost 400 living units that they're planning to be CHA homes or Chicago Housing Authority homes or below market unit homes. But there's no real say or no on how they're going to maintain those ratios or even what below market means. And all the jobs being promised, they said ideally they want uh, those spaces to be for Cinespace employees, which is the studio that helps produce Chicago Fire and PD. Also, uh, Sinai, they are hoping to have after-treatment facilities there. So, you know, we just don't really know the, you know, the types of people, what their income level is that these spaces are already kind of being promised for. And also includes uh, Lagunitas, which from what we've heard, the housing that's kind of developing in that area near Lagunitas Breweries now being called Lagunitaville, not North Lawndale. Yeah, and that's another thing that I kind of feel uncomfortable with. I didn't really grow up on the west side. I used to kind of be in that area for high school because it's not too far from where I went to high school, but I don't really think I like this development or this conversation around this development, you know, coming in and renaming uh, areas of the city that are, you know, primarily occupied by black folks, you know, renaming North Lawndale community as Longanitaville. It's kind of weird to me, especially as uh, Longanitas is like a company. I just, I don't really vibe with that. It kind of erases over a hundred years of history in North Lawndale. Now we're at this point where some of that, that name is dissolving. Yeah, I wonder how much of, I mean, this conversation is including the folks that actually live in this area. I know they've spoken to folks from the city and all these different companies and everything, CHA, uh, Chicago Housing Authority, are talking about how much of a good thing is this is going to be for the North Lawndale community. But, you know, from folks who've kind of gone through the gentrification process, whenever de- big, huge developments want to come in and, you know, build this thing without kind of consulting or, you know, seeing what the actual community that already lives there thinks about it, you already kind of see like a recipe for disaster. And public funds are going to be going towards this project if it's approved by city council. That vote will be coming up. I believe the Sun-Times said that they want it to be approved by like early 2019. So this is definitely, you know, something to really keep in, in mind and in your sights and, you know, really trying to decipher and hold like developers accountable for what, could end up serving the community or what might not be. So the next story that we're going to talk about today is the recent Mercy Hospital shooting that happened here in Chicago about a couple weeks ago. It happened Monday, November 19th. And basically the situation was Dr. Tamara O'Neill, who worked at Mercy Hospital, she had recently broke off her engagement with her fiancé, who Juan Lopez 
he showed up to the hospital and kind of confronted her about returning the ring. And it kind of escalated into him shooting Dr. Tamara O'Neill in the kind of escalation of the situation, shot a pharmacy resident in the hospital, as well as a Chicago police officer. But CNN kind of ran with the uh, the latter of the story, uh, their, their headlines covering it. A police officer and two employees were killed in a Chicago hospital shooting that left gunmen dead. So, I mean, right there, we kind of, we see this framed as an act of violence towards police, which has been a very polarizing topic over the past four or five years instead of, uh, you know, more of a, an act of violence against women. And particularly, uh, you know, she was, a, she was a black doctor. She was a very, you know, formative and strong, like, role model for so many people, I imagine. I remember it's a kind of talking about how in, like, articles and, like, just rundowns of the situation on, like, news media, how it was, like, it focused primarily on framing it as a like a sh- like a shooting towards the police and in like certain articles um it not mentioning that Dr. Tamara was even kind of in the situation until like way later in the story and you know this is primary it, it's her story they buried um, the lead definitely i feel like trying to give them the benefit of, of the doubt and like early coverage you don't always like have the exact details mm-hmm. of stuff but once you get into like the next few days and details start coming out you kind of want to shift how you're kind of writing your story and you know be honest about what happened you know not to minimize the death of Chicago police officer Sir Samuel Jimenez but not speaking about what happened to Dr. O'Neill and instead focusing it on something, you know, primarily happened to the police is kind of, you know, not treating her legacy justice and kind of, you know, really starting a conversation about what this was, you know, an act of violence towards women and, you know, starting a real conversation about domestic violence and how that primarily and largely affects black women. Mm-hmm. And well, and that's the thing is, you know, national outlets specifically, they're, they're there for the one hitter. It's the same thing that the Tribuner sometimes will do with gun violence here. You know, they don't, they don't follow up with the stories, the impacts it has in the community for the most part. And yeah, it's just a, it's a real shame that they haven't really given a lot of the, you know, like the depth and breadth needed to fully capture like why why and how these things happened and how they can be cured or remedied. Something that I saw on social media in the couple days after on social media from like folks that I'm friends with and pages that I follow is them talking about the kind of situations and that affect black women as far as relationships and domestic violence and how that kind of played into this event. But largely nothing like that mentioned in uh, huge news media. And context is important. So when things like this happens, I hope that in the future, news media can kind of look inwards and kind of see how these things play off of each other because this was something that happened to her stemming from a domestic dispute between Dr. O'Neill and the shooter. And I think I, I gained more information around this, this incident 
just on Twitter, like social media, just a thread of a conversation of like who she was, what transpired. I feel like that got to the core of it much quicker and much more casual tone too than me actually going back and reading articles and kind of seeing the like the yeah the miscarriage of of this story. I know sometimes in the news media space, primarily with uh, TV news where I have a background, there can kind of be uh, a thing where they look down upon folks who do social media sort of news or folks who aren't really. Um, trained in traditional ways of Mm -hmm. doing news and spreading information to folks. But I would say to everyone at home, don't let that sort of stop you, whether you, where you get your information, whether that's from traditional news or from folks on social media, just making sure you're getting the right information is important. Those were our headlines for episode four. Next stop, shout outs and announcements. This stop is shout-outs and announcements where we give the rundown of what's happening in North Lawndale. Shout-out to The Block. They are a nonprofit boxing club based in DRW College Prep. They help teach students self-discipline and have also raised their participants' GPAs. And they're now branching out to Fraser Prep Academy and KIPP One Academy. You will hear more about that later in the show. Shout-out to the North Lawndale Employment Network. Uh, NLEN had its most successful turkey giveaway, distributing about a thousand turkeys and side dishes to the community this Thanksgiving. Shout out to Turning the Page, who's partnering with Carpe Librum for a pop-up in Wicker Park. They're selling discounted books, CDs, and DVDs from December 1st to the 15th, and those proceeds will be going to six partner schools in North Lawndale. Check out their Twitter at TTP Chicago to learn more about the sale and also the parent leadership and school programs they're offering. And one announcement, winter is upon us, and so are uh, parking rules, which it's a tough time of the year for people, when, especially when you get hit with uh, you know, some of those orange envelopes on your windshield. So I'm going to give you a quick rundown. The overnight parking ban, which goes from December 1st to the end of March, streets marked with no parking from 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. are subject to the overnight parking ban, even if there's no snow. Uh, make sure your car's off the street or you could face 150 in towing fees, $60 ticket, and $20 a day for storage. Those really add up. So, yeah, make sure that, yeah, you're getting your cars off the street there. Um, and also the two-inch rule. So when there's two inches of snow, cars need to be off all main roads or they're also subject to tickets. And make sure to keep your sidewalk shoveled. Uh, I mean, even beyond the... The potential of getting a warning or a ticket, it's just something nice for your neighborhood and, you know, keeps everyone safe. This has been Shoutouts and Announcements. Next stop, who dat? Welcome to Who That? This is Jenny. 
Here's the place you know about people doing amazing in Chicago. Today we have a very special guest, Shamal Cannon. He runs a nonprofit youth boxing outreach program, The Block, in North Langdale. Thank you for coming, Jamal. Thank you for having me, Jenny. So Jamal, he used to be a teacher at the DRW College Prep, and now he's running the block with volunteers and community members who care about youth in the west side of Chicago. Jamal, we'd love to hear more about the block. I'm glad to tell you about the block. Uh, first, uh, when if you went around the west side of Chicago and you asked uh, a bunch of kids, you know, do you want to join a mentor and a tutoring program? Uh, you might get laughed out of a room, but because we offer boxing as an outreach, uh, we're able to reach kids who normally wouldn't be attracted to programs for academic support or tutoring, and also kids who want to fight. Uh, and when we are able to reach out to those kids, uh, I think we can make a really strong impact. So kids who come to the block, uh, the first thing they do when they get there is uh, sit down and do their homework. Uh, there are also kids who we have on some academic support programs so to help out with their reading and math. Um, they do this because they know they had to do it before uh, going into the boxing program. Uh, we also hook them up with relationships with mentors who uh, just help them through their daily lives, help them set goals uh, to pursue throughout the school year. Uh, help them uh, overcome some of the, the issues that come up in their lives and really serve as a, as a support system for the young people that we train. And everybody comes in with different needs. Uh, you know, we have some kids who just really need to work out some anger. Uh, and boxing is the vehicle that they get to do that in instead of going out and doing it on the streets. Uh, we've got some kids who need a sense of belonging. And I think that's a really important part of our program is just having a place where people feel accepted and where people feel like they belong. Uh, because... There are a lot of kids who go throughout their day and not really feel accepted in their day-to-day -day life. They go to schools, they don't accept them for who they are. They go home and they don't feel accepted for who they are. Um, and when you have a situation like that, kids, kids end up getting swept up in the things that they don't belong in. Uh, we want to take the weapon of acceptance back and provide it to young people in Chicago. I know that it actually started from a classroom. Mm -hmm. So I'm very curious about like how it developed to the current you know, current stage. Uh, so I just started the program in my classroom at DRW College Prep. We make just kind of a, a square out of the desk to simulate a ring and really kind of created this small little family of misfits and outcasts with the, with the boxers in the block. I knew that we were on to something bigger than a program that could be contained in a classroom. I realized that I needed some help. Uh, keeping track of the kids, supporting the kids. I realized that uh, some kids would be hurt if I, I created an environment where they feel like they have a family, they feel like they have a home, but I didn't support them in the way that they needed to be supported. So uh, I started calling up some people who could serve as mentors, uh, calling up some people who could serve as tutors. I started a Saturday session where we can come together and just talk through things. Uh, I really uh, I, I wanted to make sure we weren't letting kids slip through the cracks. As I started doing those things, it became clear to the school that the program had gotten much bigger than just a small program in a classroom. Uh, and they told me, hey, you got to start your own thing, Kenan. So uh, I found a board of directors uh, from some of our supporters and we launched the block. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And also, I was wondering, like, what's the driven source for you? to do all this work? I think when you look at what's going on in kids' lives, there are two conclusions that you can come to. Um, you can look at what's happening on the West Side and you can say that these kids are less talented, they're less driven, 
they just want to be gangsters and thugs. They uh, they don't have what it takes to be successful. Or you can look at what's happening on the West Side and you can say something profoundly unfair is happening. With the environment the kids are growing up in, uh, with the obstacles that they have to overcome, with the level of education that they receive, with the infrastructure uh, in the community, something unfair is happening. And I think we have to do everything that we can to combat that, to, to show them that they have what it takes uh, to, to push through that and be successful regardless of the obstacles that are placed in front of them. I'm not saying uh, that we make excuses for kids because I can't make, make excuses in my own life, but I think we need to confront some of the things that are happening in their lives so that, so that they, can, they can build the skills and they can build the resources and they can build the networks that, to overcome them. Great, great. Mm. So I was wondering, like, how did you get into like boxing? If I'm being completely honest, I, I wanted to I wanted to hurt somebody. Um, I used to fight just all the time, and walking into a boxing gym uh, really helped me kind of pinpoint the sources of the the anger that I was feeling, recognize that that anger came from a real pain, uh, and and helped me and helped me regulate it. So I just fell in love with the sport. Um, and the fact that I had some success with it is almost incidental. I'm actually from Lexington, Kentucky. I went to school at the University of Kentucky. I joined Teach for America in 2010, moved out to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and taught in Glendale uh, before moving out to Chicago to help open DRW College Prep. So I've been around a little. Yes. So why did you like decided to uh, move to Chicago? I, one of, the, one of the things I realized about Chicago is that there were some, some tough battles being fought here. And there's also the, the, the deep belief that these are tough battles that can be won. Uh, I, I, think, I think we need people in situations like this to uh, just to come in and do whatever they can, even in a small way. I'm not, I'm not coming here thinking I'm, I'm going to save a community because that's, that's not my job. The community is safe itself. But I can do one small thing and the lives of the people here that make their lives a little bit better. Uh, I know that like there are two new programs, right? Oh yeah. You like starting just starting this fall. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the the way that the block grows right now is by finding new schools to move into. When you have to travel to get to us, there's less time to do the homework. You come a little bit less. You're a little bit less invested in the program. Uh, so what we've decided to do is expand by moving into schools uh, across the west side. I was wondering, like, how how much time you spend, like, every week, um, just on block. Oh goodness! So this this is a this is a significant part of my life. Um, my my wife is involved. She's helping out with training up at, at Kip One Academy. I don't think about it as work. <laughs> it's just kind of what I do. Go and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. Uh, we're uh, the block at the block Chicago on Instagram. Uh, just the block on Facebook. Uh, start sharing our stories because I think they're important stories for people to know. Um, and there are plenty of ways for people to get involved uh, and, and support those young people. Doors closing. UIC Halstead is next. Doors open on the left at UIC Halstead. Please be considerate when talking on your phone or listening to electronic devices so as not to disturb other customers. This stop is The Deep Dish. I'm Trevor. I'm Sam. And in this episode, we're discussing a story I've been working on about bond reform and reshaping in Cook County. Right. So in July of 2017, 
the Cook County Circuit Court's Chief Judge Timothy Evans issued an order mandating that judges in the city of Chicago must assign reasonable bail to defendants, meaning that judges had to take into account the defendants' financial circumstances before assigning them a bail amount. This mandate, which was regarded nationwide as a big step towards large-scale bail reform, was a big victory for the Coalition to End Money Bond, a group comprised of various activists and civil rights organizations across the city that formed in 2016. The results, though, haven't been entirely satisfactory. The Chicago Community Bond Fund, one of the member organizations in the coalition, launched a court-watching campaign soon after the mandate was issued to see if the city's judges were really holding up their end of the bargain. The answer, they found, was that many judges weren't. Their study showed that nearly 30% of bail amounts that circuit court judges would set were unaffordable, and that over 2,500 people remain in Cook County Jail because they can't afford to get out. This negligence hasn't gone unnoticed, and the Coalition to End Money Bond has continued working to hold these judges accountable. We invited Charlene Grace, co-director of the Chicago Community Bond Fund, and April Friendly, an organizer at the People's Lobby, to speak with us about their ongoing efforts to reshape the bail system and abolish money bond, and to tell us a little bit about why the system needs to be fixed in the first place. Hi, Charlene. Hi, April. Can you guys please introduce yourselves and the groups that you're here representing? Hey, my name is April Friendly with the People's Lobby. And my name is Charlene Grace with the Chicago Community Bond Fund. And both the People's Lobby and the Bond Fund are part of the Coalition Den Money Bond. So before we get into the nitty gritties of the work that your groups have been doing on the ground... Could we take a step back and explain to listeners who maybe aren't super familiar with Money Bond how the bail system works? So what purpose is the bail system theoretically supposed to serve? And how do judges choose how much money defendants have to pay? All right. So the idea behind Money Bail is that it's an amount of money someone puts up and it allows them to be free awaiting trial. So everyone that we're talking about is pre-trial, they're merely accused, they're not convicted of anything. In reality, what Money Bail has been doing is people haven't been able to afford to pay it. It's set in amounts that are exorbitant. A year or two ago, more than 85% of the people in Cook County Jail pre-trial needed $10,000 or more to get out, um, which is not money that people who are criminalized and in communities that are policed and targeted by policing are able to come up with. So it's sort of a backdoor way to lock people up awaiting trial without going through the procedures that are supposed to be in place to protect people. And the way that judges set bail varies a lot, and it's changed recently in Cook County. It is now supposed to be in an amount that someone can afford to pay. Um, So the idea is that instead of setting these exorbitant bail amounts and locking people up for potentially years while their case is pending, the idea is that judges set bond in an amount that someone can afford to pay. They pay that and then they get out. So it's actually a way that people are securing their release. And isn't it like the theory behind it is that putting money down gives people incentive to show up to their court date? That is the theory behind it, um, but every reputable study that's ever looked at it, you know, every study that's not funded by the for-profit bail bonds industry has found that that's not really true, that if we want people to come back to court, 
Um, we can give them court date reminders. We can do simple things. We can put in as much effort as our dentist puts in to help us remember when we have a dentist appointment um, and that those are much more effective ways to get people to come back to court. And community bail funds have also found the same thing, that we pay bail for people and that's not their money, that's the money of the organization, and that those people, because they have those supports and those reminders, they come back to court at a higher rate than people who put up their own money. So I'll just ask you both personally then, when was the moment when you realized that this system was rotten and how and why did you get involved with the coalition? I didn't even know how our bail system worked until just a couple years ago. I did not realize that bail was actually like ransom for poor people. Yeah. You know, when you are being accused of a crime and then told that in order to maintain a life that you were living before you were accused of this crime, you got to put up some cash money. Mm. Because somebody accused you of something. For you to maintain the lifestyle that you had before they accused you of something, you have to put up cash money. Like, there's just something inherently wrong with that scenario. And if you don't come up with cash money, then you can be locked up in a cage. Mm. So although that has not been my personal experience, um, there are people in my neighborhood where that is their experience. And I, so I've seen firsthand what kind of a hardship that creates, um, whether, you know, even if they can come up with the money, what do sometimes families have to do in order to come up with that money? Even $200, you know, when people are living check to check and working to actually live check to check, coming up with 200 bucks is a hardship, mm-hmm. and it can have a tremendous impact on um, communities, particularly poor communities. And right now, you know, we see that, you know, with 73% of our population inside of Cook County being black and poor, that it's, also, it's not just an economic issue. This is also a racial issue. Mm-hmm. Well, the Coalition to End Money Bond staged rallies to protest the lack of action by Cook County judges. And this led to a meeting with Judge Evans, the meeting that we've been talking about, right? Yeah. Well, actually, so the coalition, we had, uh, we um, staged a protest and rally, like actually on September 18th, which was the one-year anniversary of the General Order 188A, which basically was a statute or a recommendation for judges to set affordable bail. Mm-hmm. You know, which was which was great. Well, a good move forward. And since that order actually went into place, there were 2,700 folks who were actually released from Cook County because of this order, um, because they couldn't afford their bail. Now, having said that, and that was great work and, and, and good progress. However, there were still, as of October 30th, still over 2,500 folks who were inside or who are inside of Cook County still because they cannot afford their bail. Mm -hmm. And then we escalated our action on October 30th. We did uh, with a number of organizations, so the People's Lobby, Seoul, Southsiders Organizing for Unity and Liberation, Black Lives Matter, A Just Harvest. We uh, organized a demonstration at Cook County Jail. And we actually had folks who, uh, about 15 folks who did go and went inside and occupied the courthouse where we actually shut down business as usual for over almost five hours. 
And out of that uh, occupation of the Cook, uh, Cook County uh, Courthouse, we were able to actually get that uh, meeting with Chief Judge Evans where the recommendation was made for a member of our organization to be put onto that Illinois Supreme Court Commission. Um, we also, out of that meeting, uh, we were able to negotiate for adjustments or reviews of the pretrial services that are offered to folks um, that Charlene spoke about earlier, practical pretrial services that actually do support and encourage and help people to keep their court date, including reminder calls, including child care, including transportation to and from um, these court dates, um, because it is a real hardship on folks to come back and forth and and appear in front of these judges. And what was the other part? You also got uh, reviews for all of the 2,500 people, right? Or at least movement towards it. Yes. Yes. For those folks to be released. So reviews of their current, Uh, like, like what their bail has been set at and reviews of if that's unaffordable for them. Right. Yeah. And I think the, a lot of the progression for us in the campaign and the public education around the campaign is about um, it's it's more about like stamina <laughs> and correcting misinformation. So people, I think three years ago when we started this work, there was a lot of general education. So we could say, this is what's happening. Here's who's in Cook County Jail and why they're there. And a lot of people didn't know that. Now people know that. People understand that money bail is a problem, that it's unfair, that it's racist. But they heard that there was a bill passed in Springfield in 2017. They heard that Chief Judge Evans announced this order. So now it's that we're um, we're several years in and we have to maintain momentum and pressure and we have to explain the nuances of why different reforms that have happened, they aren't sufficient on their own and keep people interested after they've been following along for a couple of years. And that, I think, is a current challenge and opportunity that we have as the coalition. Yeah, definitely educating, keeping folks educated as to how the system actually works is is incredibly crucial and critical to uh, winning any reform or winning any kind of movement in a direction that actually benefits the people. Because even with orders or legislation in place, you know, that that is movement in a good direction. But then there's also the implementation of it, you know, so like this, this, so particularly the this general order 188A is in place, but are all of the judges actually following this order? Are they asking folks what is actually an affordable bail? Are public defenders, you know, actually advocating for their clients? How is it actually being rolled out in the court system? Yeah, the implementation and how it is um how it is on the ground in reality is incredibly important, which is why it's so important for people to stay educated, for us to stay engaged and on top of this. And another reason why accountability is like the next piece. It's 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 a piece of this long game strategy to winning any real reform or any real change. Mm-hmm. And even when we win the next thing, even if we get the exact Supreme Court rule that we want in 2020, then we still have to make sure that that rule change on paper actually translates to different behavior by judges in 30 different courtrooms in Cook County and then hopefully courtrooms all around the state of Illinois. That actually leads very nicely into my next question, which is just that after Chief Judge Evans issued mandate 188A, 
it kind of felt like a really big step towards meaningful bail reform. And it is a big step towards meaningful bail reform. But the results haven't been 100% there, as we see, because there's still lots of people who are locked up because they can't afford uh, bail. So my question to both of you would be, what, like, what were you hoping to see when that mandate was initially passed? And then why do you think that it hasn't been fully effective? Is it something that is a problem at the level of just like individual judges maybe don't have much regard for it? Or is the problem rooted in something deeper? None of these issues, when we look at our whole mass incarceration system and the bail reform is is a piece Right is a, is a cog in this whole system. No one reform is going to like so all of these pieces are connected from, you know, so the bail system to how folks are charged, um, how folks are prosecuted, how folks even get picked up on the street. These are systemic mm-hmm. issues. So although there can be some good judges or judges who do some good work. There are judges who, you know, are just absolutely awful and who absolutely discriminate and perpetuate just inequities and exploitation. But it, it is not on any single institution or on any single individual. These are systemic issues that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And that's actually why, you know, so as an organization, um, the work that we do with the People's Lobby and even with the coalition, it's important to educate folks beyond just the single issue and to really highlight the the systems. Yeah, and I would just add to that, like specifically within the court system, there is just a normalization of locking people up. There's a normalization of putting humans in cages, including when they're awaiting trial, and there's just that is not taken as a serious thing that should be carefully eliminated or eliminated. And so we are sort of battling that, the underlying thing that it's just not seen as a big deal to scoop someone up out of their community and put them in a cage for a few days or a week while they come up with bail or for several years while they wait for their trial. Um, and so we have this larger indifference or even the utility that that serves um, in the court system to make sure that people take pleas to um, make it possible to process all these many thousands of people through our criminal court system. Um, And it does serve a function to lock people up, whether we do that through bail or we do it because we deny people release outright. So we need to recognize that the courts benefit from that, that judges and prosecutors benefit from that, and that uh, communities don't benefit from that. Right. Um, and corporations even benefit fr- from that. Like these systems actually create huge profit margins for many industries that do not support black and brown communities in particular, poor communities of color. And um, in this city in particular, we can see that like we can see that on the street. We can see that throughout the South Side, throughout the West Side, right? It it is, you know, when you go into these communities uh, of color, like there is no shortage of police who are on the street cruising around uh, or just watching the block. Yet these are the communities that are riddled supposedly with crime and uh, disinvestment dollars. So, like, what's happening This is not by accident. These are like intentional systems that are actually are running as they are designed to 
profit off of these poor black and brown communities. So, yes, uh, I can go on a tangent here, but let me stop. Let me. Snaps are in order. <laughs> Perfect. Well, yeah. Well, we want to thank uh, April Friendly from the People's Lobby and Charlene Grace from the Chicago Community Bond Fund for uh, coming on the show and for your work to reform the bail system. And, Trevor, this is a story that we're going to be following pretty closely on The Real Shy mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future. So, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing what you guys do next. But, yeah, thank you guys for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So we want to thank our guests, April Friendly and Charlene Grace, one more time for coming on to the show and remind our listeners that you can follow the People's Lobby on Facebook and Twitter at People's Lobby USA and follow the Chicago Community Bond Fund on those sites at Shy Bond Fund. That was The Deep Dish. Next stop, Girl on the Train. Next stop is Girl on the Train. We are focusing on sexual harassment and harassment towards women in public spaces in general due to the recent appointment of now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. This is an ongoing discussion that affects men and women all over the world. Well, he was playing with fire and he almost caught my hair on fire. And these guys like threatened him and told him don't ever touch me. So now I do use protection. Gwen was saying that there was this guy on the train who was playing with fire and he almost caught her hair on fire. It's unfortunate that we have to deal with stuff like that in general. And it leads to the question, what is the face of harassment? What was the reason? What was the cause? But also, like, it takes on many different shapes and form. It doesn't even just have to be a sexual thing. It's a power thing. Why does this guy have fire in an open (laughs) space? But at least there was someone that was trying to help, you know, So, because a lot of people don't even do that. It's bad enough that we have to experience harassment, but it's even worse when we can't react to these situations because it's like, am I putting myself in more danger? And so I'd rather just put my head down and pretend it didn't happen, and that kind of leads to... I guess, questions about, like, did it really happen? Was I just overreacting? And I think that issue of, like, doubting what happened and doubting yourself and the reality that you just experienced is something that a lot of women can relate to. Harassment, it's sometimes it's not just about gender. It's, like, an intersection of different issues. I had people come up to me and said a lot of racial slurs just because ethnically, I, I like, I'm from Asia. So I think that is the most intensive experience I've had, just people slurring out words that are inappropriate and offensive. So that's basically her experience. But sometimes when I was on the train, I feel like someone was like staring at me. So I'm not sure whether I'm doing something wrong, doubting myself, and also think about that. Um, maybe it's because I'm a, I'm a woman, and maybe uh, because I'm I look like Asian, it makes the situation worse. It's been a recurring theme with what we're saying and, and doubting yourself. Um, 
if it's as prevalent amongst men as it is women, like, is it something that we have been trained to do now, especially in light of what happened with the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh and seeing someone speak up and seeing someone that was of highest stature in the community, a doctor, say that she was assaulted and people, yes, doubting her and wanting to discredit her, but then also, unfortunately, not even if if, the, if they did believe her, you know, not really necessarily caring. Um, and it just makes me wonder, is it something that I've been trained to do to to think, oh, well, is it that it's not that bad? It, it can't have been that bad. I'm just blowing it up because I'm just a woman. For me, the biggest reason why I say something is because it's been normalized. And I think that's what we need to disrupt is this normalization of these little tiny microaggressions being kind of swept under the rug. You know, even if I think about the last week, my existence just trying to walk down the street and, and be in this world is marked by all of these tiny little microaggressions. But they add up to this message of, you know, you don't matter and you have less power than than other people do. And so in light of this Kavanaugh thing and and those kinds of uh normalized behavior is being institutionalized now, I think it's even more important for us to kind of speak up at the the micro level and kind of break that normalization. You just walk with an awareness. My mom always told me, like, look behind your back. Don't carry too many things. Um, don't look lost. Don't be on your phone. Um, I do have a self-defense keychain uh, and a taser. I was doing spray um, pepper spray for a while that was easily 10 different things that I am assured most men don't even think about on a weekly monthly even yearly basis and that's something that we think about every minute of every day there are not a lot of street lights where I live so I use um, the flashlight from my phone and just people look at me crazy there were these uh Two uh, young boys, I was just, you know, shining my light, you know, just to light up the area so I can see. And they just looked at me like, girl, what are you doing? I'm like, like, your ass look like a little kid with that flashlight. Like, and I just kept walking. And then it was funny because immediately after that, an older woman who saw me, she was like, you keep that on you. Like, it's dangerous out here. Like, please be safe. After hearing that clip, just very surprised that that's how her brother refers to her. When his his sister is trying to keep herself safe, um, so that that to me was just really alarming. Actually, yeah, I think it just goes to show that that kind of stuff is just not on men's radar at all, and it seems extra, and it seems maybe paranoid to them. Uh, but for us, it's literally life and death. So a lady um, I met on the red light, she actually told me that she basically avoid uh, avoids like taking the public transportation, she would prefer a car. And if she has to take like train, she will do that like before 9 p.m. And after that, she will prefer driving or just like order a Lyft or Uber. Um, I've heard stories of women in Ubers and Lyfts being harassed or being hit on when they've clearly said, no, I don't want to give you my number. Like in the Philippines, um, where I'm from, there are just constant reports about Uber drivers um, harassing passengers and even raping them. 
It's very common that every time there's a news about sexual harassment on the public transportation, people always like blame the, the girls, the ladies. They feel like, oh, maybe it's just the way you dressed. You just, I mean, you wear like short skirts. That's how you like attract these like predators. But actually, it's not that case. Sorry, I'm just going to call it out. There's an issue in the male community, and it needs to be addressed. And be, and these small assaults need to be addressed <laughs> because otherwise it's it just allows them to think that it's okay for them to continue. With everything that's going on, we shouldn't just be passive passengers to the sexual harassment. Um, we should be more active in just using our voices and really just standing together to try to combat all of this. Also, we would just love to dedicate this segment to just anyone around the world who's experienced sexual harassment, people who've told their stories, who may feel like they can't tell their stories. We hear you. We acknowledge you. And that's including trans women. Yes. All femmes. This has been Girl on the Train, and next stop is One Minute of Love. This stop is One Minute of Love. In order to connect with someone, you need more than news. Here's a little bit of love. This time around, we're looking to draw inspiration from Lauren Hill and her debut album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, uh, which recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. In honor of Hill's album, we wanted to pay homage to the iconic interludes on the record. The interludes feature school children discussing love. What is love? Who deserves to love? And who deserves to be loved? So we went to North Lawndale College Prep to talk to the class of Sarah Oberholzer and to hear what their students had to say about love. Here's what they had to say. Has anyone ever been in love? Yup. I could relate to this house. Like, if somebody mentioned their name, you smell wrong. Do you always talk to you about that? Does it hurt to be in love? Yes, it hurts so bad. When you have love, you overthink. Yeah. Everything, any little thing can really hurt you. Like, you looking at somebody there. If they don't take back When you're not around them, it makes you mad. You can't trust them. You said said when they don't text back. That's kind of a new thing, like right? You, you got to, like, if you don't text back in two seconds. <laughs> now, you said you disagree. Yeah. Why you disagree? Because I don't love. You don't love. So how would you know? If you've never been in love, you would not know what we're talking about. You got to be there to feel it. Nah, right. boys feel different things, though. Because y'all some... We don't feel the same. Uh, what y'all feel? Right, what y'all feel? What y'all feel? I can't relate to y'all. Nothing. We don't feel nothing. Who deserves to be loved? Everybody. Everybody. No. Everybody. 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 Some people don't know how to show loyalty, so they don't deserve to get no like type who? of love. <laughs> Big, There's loyal people, liars. Like, you know? And people cheat. That's just like, you be, You be like, love somebody so much, you just got to hit them. Like, just to show them. Let me stop playing. I don't believe in love. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let me talk, bro. <laughs> I don't believe in love because people people can feed you a lot of lies, and yeah, at the end of the day, love hurts. So you don't love me? You both. <laughs> I'm just saying you don't believe in love. No. If if love ain't coming from my family, then 
People can say they love you, but like they don't really love you. They just. I know some fact she love me. These nowadays they show love. Different. Yeah, they want back then they had to break <laughs> They had to ask your daddy. So yeah, back then, the boys treated girls with more manners. It's like the boys now that don't have manners and disrespect. So anybody else? Anybody else has a thought on what it means to love? I know the feeling. I don't know the definition. Right, it's like a feeling. It's an emotion. Is it an emotion? I'm close to them. I would do anything for them. I put them in I just love them to death. Love is a strong word. Yes, I yes. It can make you do stuff you don't want to do. Break you and change it for the better or worse. Sometimes you don't know the difference between real love, people that show real love, people that show fake love. Yep. It'd be people that want you around for a season and not a lifetime. Oh, I This stop is One Minute of Love. In order to connect with someone, you need more than news. Here's a little bit of love. This time around, we're looking to draw inspiration from Lauren Hill and her debut album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, uh, which recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. In honor of Hill's album, we wanted to pay homage to the iconic interludes on the record. The interludes feature school children discussing love. What is love? Who deserves to love? And who deserves to be loved? So we went to North Lawndale College Prep to talk to the class of Sarah Oberholzer and to hear what their students had to say about love. Has anyone ever been in love? Yup. 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 I can relate to this. Like, if somebody mentioned their name, you smell hard. You always talk about that? Does it hurt to be in love? Yes, it hurts so bad. When you ask her, you overthink. Yeah. And everything, any little thing can really hurt you. Like you looking at somebody there. If they don't take back and forth. When you're not around them, it make you mad. Like yeah, you, you can't trust them. Oh. Yeah, you said, you said when they don't text back. That's kind of a new thing, like, right? You, you got like, if you don't text back in two seconds. <laughs> now you said you disagree. Yeah. Why you disagree? Because I don't love. You don't love. So how would you know? If you've never been in love, you would not know what we're talking about. You got to be there to feel it. Nah, right. boys feel different things, though. Cause y'all some We don't feel the same. Uh, what y'all feel? Right, what y'all feel? Well, I'm talking about can't relate to y'all. Nothing. We'll feel Who deserves to be loved? Everybody. 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 No. Everybody, Wait, everybody, everybody. Some, people, some people don't know how to show loyalty, so they don't deserve to get no like type who? of love. Nobody. There's loyal people, liars, you know, and people cheaters. Like, you be, you be like, love somebody so much, you just gotta hit them, like just to show them. Let me stop playing. I don't believe in love. Um, <laughs> let me talk, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in love because people people can feed you a lot of lies and yeah at the end of the day love hurts. So you don't love me? You both. <laughs> I'm just saying you don't believe in love. No. If if love ain't coming from my family, then people can say they love you, but like they don't really love you. They just. I'm for a fact she love me. These nowadays they show love. They yeah, they want back then they had to break yeah. They had to ask your daddy. Yeah, back then, back then the, the boys treated girls with more manners. It's like the boys now they don't have manners and disrespect. So anybody else? Anybody else has a thought on what it means to love? 
I know the feeling. I don't know the definition. Right, it's like a feeling. I'm close to them. I would do anything for them. I put them before me. I just love them to death. Love is a strong word. Yes, I feel yes. It can make you do stuff you don't want to do. Break you and change it. For the better or worse. Sometimes you don't know the difference between real love, people that show real love, people that show fake love. Yep. It'd be people that want you around for a season and not a lifetime. Oh, I got that off my deal. Doors open on the left at Western. Your attention, please. Your venture card may be expiring soon, so make sure your rides don't. Register your venture card online and you'll receive a new card in the mail for free prior to expiration. Learn more at VentureChicago.com. This is the final stop as far as this podcast goes. The Real Shy is a program under Free Spirit Media, which provides media arts education for young people on both west and south sides of Chicago. We would like to thank our guest, Charlene Grace, co-director of Chicago's Community Bond Fund, April Friendly, an organizer at the People's Lobby, as well as Sarah Oberhoser and her students from North Lawndale College Prep. We will also like to thank Daniel Kisslinger and Damon Williams from Ergo, who worked with us to produce this show. A special thanks to Cards Against Humanity for sharing their studio with us as well. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at The Real Shy FSM. Until next time, thanks for riding with The Real Shy. Doors closing. Damon, you recognize those drums? I think I do. You know what song they're from? Is this a Belle Biv DeVoe moment? It's a Belle Biv DeVoe moment. That is from the song Poison. <laughs> I really thought that song was America's favorite poison. No, no, no. Turns out it's beer. <laughs> Speaking of beer, this episode is brought to you by Lagunitas Brewing Company, Chicago Tap Room and Beer Sanctuary. Come for fresh beer, live music, and killer food Wednesdays through Sundays. Killer food. <laughs> 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Bring your group and hop on a brewery tour seven days a week or swing by the Lagunitas Tap Room in Pilsen. Does sanctuary like imply meditation and offerings to the Lord? <laughs> Not my lord. <laughs> you can also find some Lagunitas near you at lagunitas.com. Life is uncertain. Don't sip.